Hello and welcome to the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast. Today's edition is with Dr. Freeze himself. Uh, we're joined by Christopher Hendon, who is um, who is a, how would I say this, a computational chemist at the University of Oregon over in, over in America. Yeah, that's right. That's basically what I do. Uh, well, it was wonderful to have you on, Christopher. And it's, I think this is the episode that everyone's kind of been waiting for with this podcast because it is a coffee podcast, but... If I were to only talk about frozen coffee every single episode, I'd run out of content pretty quickly. Um, that's probably just perhaps me, but I think this is the one that everyone's been waiting for, and I've been waiting for in particular. And it's very humbling to know that uh, you sent me a message and said just now that you've uh, you've listened to one of the podcasts, and it's awesome to awesome to hear. Oh yeah, well, it's, uh, it was my pleasure actually. I um, I try and keep up with most of the coffee podcasts, but they're becoming increasingly prevalent. And uh, when you come across a good one, it's always nice to have some some new insights, and and you know your podcast definitely provided that. So it's really my pleasure to be here. Well, mate, that's a that's a wonderful start to this one. That's that's great validation for me. But before we uh, before we get into the to the coffee nerdery, I guess we could say because I'm really keen for that myself. I want to I'd like to know a bit more about you, and I'm sure other people would. So you have an American accent. Accent sounds like kind of like a Boston. Red Sox fan accent, if I do say so myself. Um, you're <laughs> yeah. from Australia, though, right? Right, right. So I, I actually I was born here in the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. but I moved when I was ten years old uh, to Melbourne. And my, my today, my parents still live in Melbourne, um, and so I actually went to high school in Melbourne, and then I went to uni at Monash. And after finishing uni at Monash, I then started a PhD in England. So I've sort of do- taken the long way around the world to end all the way back up in the U.S. again. You know, you're a bit of a you're a bit of a journeyman, some would say. Yeah, I, I guess so. You know, it's uh, when you're young, you don't really have much choice in where you end up, right? But uh, as you get older, you have a lot of choice. And I kind of, I just enjoyed the northern hemisphere, I guess. And I've got plenty to say about your parents after because I've met them and yeah, I love right. them. They're they're absolutely awesome, and you're a cool guy. But I, I almost yeah, I almost could say that. Right? Yeah, they're yeah. just they're 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 pretty awesome, and you're you're very lucky to have parents. Uh, the, the parents that you do, but what are your interests outside of coffee? So you're obviously you're hardcore into to your chemistry and um, a lot of right. mathematics. I would say come along with that, and obviously you've got an interest in coffee. What other things are you interested in? Yeah, so uh, when I moved to Eugene, um, the only spare time I had prior to that was to work on coffee, and so it was either chemistry or coffee. We didn't do too much else. Um, but actually, when I was as a graduate student in England, I began uh, sort of becoming interested in in not necessarily specialty beer, but I really enjoy interesting beer flavors. Mm. It doesn't even have to be high end, right? I just I just like the the diversity of flavor that you get in beer. Um, and so I still have that passion and that interest. And actually, living in Oregon is a really great place for beer. And and actually now now I can also be interested in wine as well. Mm-hmm. So I like beer and wine for, for probably the same reasons I like coffee. Um, but when I moved to Oregon, I got myself, you know, I, I ended up having, a, now I have a home. And uh, when you know you're staying somewhere for some time, you become interested in like, you know, gardening, for example. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've, I feel like somehow I've like propelled myself into being an old person. But uh well, so yeah. have I, and I guess the current global situation is such that you you have to rethink a lot of your um, yeah. hobby activities. Yeah. I just had this impulse, you know, about a week in, my housemates and I just said, well, we need to improve the garden, and 
we completely <laughs> revamped it. It was quite. It was quite. It was yeah. quite a um, quite a revolution <laughs> in some yeah, respects. Right. It, was, it makes your home feel nicer somehow. Yeah, and we're growing spinach, passion fruit, raspberries, rosemary, flowers. Ah, um, like passion fruit. Passion fruit's a good one because the that passion fruit flower is a really unusual geometry. Like very few things in nature have the geometry of a passion fruit flower. So interesting, interesting. Well, they are strange looking, very unique and beautiful flowers. Um, as I recall, um, right. So if, I guess if you're at the university of Oregon, you're a ducks fan. Is that correct? I am now. Yeah. And what about, right. what about the blazers? Do you follow the blazers? Uh, no, I do not. Oh, come on. Man. <laughs> I, uh, I, you, you know, you've got to pick your sports um, when you're in the U.S. Because there's, you know, there's, well, except for right now, we, we, we are talking in an unusual time in history. There's a, there is no, essentially no live sports. I know, it's killing so, me. Right. So, I mean, I don't, is, is there, well, is, is it footy season or would it be footy season? It would be footy seasons. And for anyone wondering or listening abroad, that's Australian rules football, which is, um, you know, it's a very unique sport in itself, but that's just the complete lack of sport is just breaking my little heart and forcing me to, right. you know, try right. new things. Well, the problem is, is that usually you have a choice of watching any number of sports. And so mm. I end up only picking, you know, like one or two to follow. And so at working at a university that actually has a, a significant sports program, I end up following basically what whatever sports are being played by our students in addition to uh, professional football, American football, mm. gridiron. Um, and, and I don't really have the capacity to watch uh, NBA, NHL, or uh, even even more international sports like uh, football, um, you know, soccer, as some would call it. Yeah. Sort well, of somewhat limited, unfortunately. Well, you know, sport's a bit like crack in some ways because, you know, they take it away and I'm just almost incomplete without it. And, you know, yeah, you can't I, can't e- I can't even operate. But The Last Dance by uh, Mike, that Michael Jordan documentary was very fascinating. And um, if you haven't watched yeah, it, yeah. I would I would, um, I would certainly encourage you to do so. But let's get, back, let's get on to some of the coffee stuff now. So you mentioned yeah. before that you, from Melbourne, you moved to England and of from my recollection, you studied at the University of Bath. Is that correct? Right, that's right. And it is at the University of Bath, or within that sort of um, proximity or within that sort of area, you encountered Maxwell Colonna Dashwood, who had opened up a shop called Colonna and Smalls. Could you explain some of that right. chronology to us? So, yeah. So, so basically, when I, when I left Australia, um, I wasn't even drinking coffee. Uh, as a, as a college student, I remember so vividly, I've been sort of recalling my history of actually consuming this beverage. And as a student doing, you know, as like a second year undergraduate student at Monash, I remember going to the, this cafe inside the student union at a, a, on Monash Clayton's campus. And I would order a, a some sort of sweet soy chai latte. Mm. And like, I, I, because at the time, I, I mean, I like, let's be honest. Most people like those flavors in the in chai. Hey, chai I still I still I still go with soy chai every now and then. I have a guilty pleasure. Yeah, it's tasty, right? Because mm. there there's like interesting flavors in there that you know are unique. So I, I liked it at the time for that, but also because those things come pretty sweet. So I had I was drinking that, and then we would go to this cafe called Cinque Lira, which is still there. It's on Monash Clayton's campus, and I would have you know the occasional coffee, and I remember vividly hating that coffee. Uh, retrospectively, uh, I, I know now why I, I disliked it because simply it wasn't very good. Um, 
but you know it was it had these features that made me not interested in coffee back at you know turn of it was like 2008 2009 mm -hmm. around then and then so when i moved to england i didn't really understand that coffee could be a drink that had interesting flavors and sort of uh terroir related to not only processing method but also origin and all the things that we now care about in specialty coffee um and and you know so when you hear that there's a, a good cafe in your city and you go there and you are greeted with this this board this wall of information it can be daunting but also like eye-opening in the sense that i came from a place that where you know i walk in and tell maxwell i'm from melbourne and he says oh you must think you know a lot about coffee and <laughs> i mean he didn't say it like that you know but to you know that was in to some extent that was basically sort of how i would hold myself and sort of the challenge that he put forth and because of that i realized that i i knew nothing about coffee mm. uh and so you know in 2014 maybe at the end of 2013 that was when we started talking to each other uh and and realizing that you know he wanted to improve his knowledge base in chemistry and i wanted to improve mine in coffee um and we sh we sh we shared that together yeah and it's um Quite, quite fascinating that you mentioned Maxwell and, and uh, coming from Melbourne yourself because he had a brief stint in Melbourne from my uh, right. my understanding. And was he working at right. Brother Bubba Boudin? Was that? I can't yeah, that's, remember. That seems, that seems right. I mm. think he was working there. Yeah. Um, and that's... For, that... I think he spent just like one year in Melbourne or something. Him and his... Uh, well, I think Leslie went along then to his wife. Uh, I can't remember the exact chronology for that. But he certainly brought back this, this, the one thing Australians do that is so dissimilar to the rest of the coffee consuming cultures around the world is this idea that, that coffee is like, a, it's an integral part of the day. It is not, it's not only social. It is like, it is something that must happen. Mm. And, and, and like, I, you, you'll go down the street and you'll see builders and they're going for, you know, they're going for a flat white break because that has to happen. It's not the break from the work. It's the fact that the coffee is part of the day. Mm. And, you know, in Italy, that to some extent, that is true. But then the cultures are really different. You know, this is like rapid, you know, very espresso oriented culture. And, mm. and you know, that's, that's less less true in, in, in Melbourne and, and uh, I guess, Sydney and Brisbane. Well, an inter Those interesting observation to add to that is that... Um, I had Ross Quayle, who's uh, a, a friend of mine and um, working as a sales director for Hemro in Southeast Asia. But he uh, he made the assessment or the analysis on the podcast last week that people have not stopped, at least in Australia, people have not stopped drinking the same amount of coffee that they usually drink. And they're right. just finding different ways to go about it. And, um, you know, it, it's been a huge economic shock what's happened to the, to the local cafe industry here. But... Um, there's still huge lines outside of cafes um, at at a lot of places, especially in the suburban areas. Not so much in the city. The city's going through an ep economic massacre right now. But in the suburbs, the the cafes are still you know there's still plenty of lines out the door. Right. See, wait. So that's the thing. Is that like until this point in time, I think it was very easy to get you know swept away in the extremely Pinterest, extremely Instagrammable. Uh, aesthetics of Melbourne Cafe or any Australian cafe that that feel that you know that thing that makes you feel like you want to be in that space and enjoy that drink and somehow that contributes to your experience and it certainly does but at the end of the day 
people are still drinking coffee in Australia the same way they were, independent of whether they're in that space or not. And the reason is it's not really only about that. It's also about the fact that this is like part of being an Australian is you go to the cafe. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the people in the local communities around here, they really take ownership of it in a way that so they say, well, right. um, you're my local cafe. I cannot let you go down. And you know, the, right. there's a large sense of community there, which is really um, right. warming to the heart. That's awesome. Um, but where we, where we were going with this, or where I was going with with this, was that you obviously yourself and Maxwell uh, joined forces and co-authored the book Water for Chemistry, a book that I have and I have read. Very good book. Um, and it sort of started a partnership where you not only assessed water for chemistry, but that led you to write, I think, three papers in total, scientific papers. Yeah, mm. yeah right. So so when we first started, um, I'll tell you, I'll, actually, let me tell you a little, a little anecdote about this. Mm-hmm. So when we first started, I had no idea of the impact that writing a book about water chemistry would have for a coffee community, right? I had no idea. And the success of that book is large. It's, you know, it's in part due to the fact I tried really hard, but actually mostly due to Mac, the fact Maxwell is an extremely good ambassador for the coffee industry, right? He's good for knowledge. He's good for inclusivity. There's, you know, he's, a, he's just a really good person. Um, but the, the thing is, is that when we first started writing this, we knew all of this coffee water chemistry stuff but we were unable to have this thing published uh, because it wasn't written in, in, you know, in prose. And so I remember Maxwell went to the, the regional heats to compete in the Brista Championship, uh, and that was held in Birmingham and I, in the UK. And I remember first being introduced to John Gordon, who was also at the time still living there and competing. And I remember an interaction that I had with John uh, where John said, you know, I wish, I wish we had more chemists working in the coffee industry. I've got so many questions. I've got, you know, we could make so much progress. And I said, well, why don't you just talk to more chemists? And then I realized at that point, so naive, because, you know, I was younger and I knew nothing, <laughs> is, that, is that it's not that simple. You have to not only talk to people, you have to also engage, you know, capture their interest and, and share a, you know, unified passion for, you know, understanding something more deeply. So, you know, we wrote this water for coffee. And then that book, was sort of nucleated people's uh, awareness of a deeper understanding of chemistry as it applies to coffee. But I want to also point out that we weren't the first people to talk about water. I mean, people have been talking about water for mm. like 20 years. And so whenever I hear that comment, I'm, it's, we certainly don't turn a, you know, turn a blind eye to that. We, we are definitely aware of previous work. It was just a, our contribution was just making it digestible, right? Mm. We wanted to find a way to teach people not preach to people. Uh, and, and that's sort of the, what I saw as the value in water for coffee. And yeah, probably to add yeah. to this, uh, Chris, like I think a lot of people and for anyone who's listening to this podcast that might not brew coffee a lot themselves, or they're just avid coffee drinkers, the water makes up such a big part of the coffee drink. So if you, right. if you have a, an espresso, um, you know, using a, there's a tool called a refractometer or a refractive index that, people use to measure the strength of coffee and for an espresso, let's just say most of them fall within the sort of 10% margin. That means the other 90% is water. So, you know, in you, it would be important to, to uh, add the most dominant ingredient in that beverage, 90% of which is water and then, and make it 
have it high quality water or water that will help you make the best beverage or even more in a filter where on average I would say for a V60 or a pour, a pour over or a batch brew, 98.6% of the beverage is water. So it's very important that the water is of high quality or conducive to making good coffee. Right. Yeah. And to sort of take that point one, one step further is that if you think about like a water, just any given water that might contain 200 milligrams of minerals of any mineral, right. Mm. Per liter. If you think about a cup of filtered coffee makes the easy, the math easy, right. If you think a filtered coffee is 250 milliliters, so a quarter of a liter, that then the amount of mass in that cup coming from just the minerals dissolved is a quarter of 200 milligrams. So let's say that, you know, that's 50 milligrams. So 50 milligrams of just solvated stuff in there was already in the water in the first place. And then in addition, you're going to solvate to get to the concentration you've talked about, you know, something like four or five grams, something like that in the water of coffee. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem like much from a, from a perspective of like just mass because you're going to end up dissolving a lot more coffee mass than there is mineral mass from the, from the stuff that's in the water. But it turns out that that amount of mass that's floating around in that water is so powerful in terms of structuring flavor and extracting certain flavors that, you know, it's easy to overlook this, but it's also so impactful that, you know, it can take a good coffee and make it bad. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, really, really beautiful coffees can taste like actually unpalatable. It should be noted that an excellent water, if you like, you know, a water that contains uh, an appropriate amount of buffer to remove the very sharp acidic uh, flavor notes that you might get from a coffee without a little buffer, but not too much so that you can still taste some acid. Some water like that will not save a bad coffee, right? It will, it will merely allow you to not mask all the positive flavors. And so that was sort of one of the teaching moments is that we didn't prescribe a water chemistry that was ideal. We prescribed a whole spectrum of water chemistries that would you know, make coffee taste reasonable, at least to our very, very limited sample size uh, of, of coffees that we tried with, you know, numerous other people. But there's always exceptions. So there's always different waters would suit different coffees. And it's something that, you know, people with a lot of time or a lot of money are exploring in their cafe settings, is, you know, having a different water for a different, each different coffee. And that's mm. awesome. That's, that's so crazy, but also so cool. Yeah, yeah, and it, this is probably a good segue onto the peak water device. And um, yeah. and could you take could you take a moment to just explain what that is and why you've built yeah. it and when it will be available to people? Right. So so you mentioned in our previous question that I, I wrote water for coffee in some scientific publications, and one of those publications was related to the, how the positively charged components of the minerals that are in the water will in principle facilitate extraction of coffee flavors that we like. And so that was our hypothesis, uh, our conjecture at the time was that these calcium, magnesium, and things that are positively charged help us get coffee that tastes good. And indeed that's probably true still, right? We don't, we're not refuting any of that. But the point is, is that it's really difficult to target that sweet spot for water chemistry where you have high levels of calcium, magnesium, and an appropriate level of bicarbonate so that you can extract the acids and taste the acids. And we realized then that maybe we focused on the wrong charge in the mineral composition of water. When we always were talking about calcium and magnesium, the two pluses being important, but actually I think what peak water really identifies is that it's actually the minuses that really determine the flavor. You know, 
I think all of us coffee professionals would agree that we will tolerate a drink that is perhaps slightly lighter bodied if, it, if that lighter body comes at the benefit of excellent flavor. Um, in fact, I think a lot of us would substitute, you know, we'd up flavor for just about anything. Mm. So, 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 you know, that's a really complicated topic, but I guess the point is that we realize that if you have too much bicarbonate, one of the minus charges in the water, that's going to make you unable to perceive acid in coffee. Mm. And so what peak water does is it ignores calcium and ignores magnesium. It's not about that. All peak water does is deliberately targets the bicarbonate concentration and essentially crushes it to whatever level you want it to be almost all the way down to zero. Uh, and so that's what the setting is for. You know, if you have hard water, you're going to have a higher initial concentration. And so then you can, you can, you know, filter more water and push that initial concentration down so that you end up with, you know, water that contains less buffer. Mm. And if you have soft water to start, you should still be filtering your water because it'll remove, you know, through carbon at least, because it will remove, you know, odors and, and, uh, and colors that you might not like aesthetically in your water. But peak water then won't actually do too much to the bicarbonate. So that's, that's sort of like the novelty in this is that you can still use peak water even if you don't, uh, even if you are in a soft water location. But the real benefit is for those that are in hard water locations or medium water locations and can't get acidity out of their coffee. I'll just ask you a quick, really simple questions, Chris. Um, there might be baristas new to uh, coffee that are listening to this. Could you as quick as you can explain what hard and soft water are, and then um, we'll go and then we'll talk about the peak water device, which is in itself, it's like a filter jug that you pop in the yeah, fridge, sure. as I understand it, apparatus. So you pour the water in from the tap, it'll filter it and soften the water. So if you could explain right. briefly hard and soft water. Hard and soft. Mm. Yeah. So hard and soft is, are, are, are words that were sort of grandfathered into the water chemistry community, if you like. Mm. Um, soft water. It soft can refer to low concentration and then of a particular thing. So soft typically is referring to low concentrations of calcium and carbonate in water. Um, hard would be referring to not low, but I don't want to say high because, you know, hard water comes in a variety of different flavors. It could have, you could have really high levels of calcium, but also high levels of chloride. Um, and that's really different to having calcium and bicarbonate floating around in solution. Uh, and so, so actually defining hard water, I mean, there is a textbook definition, but defining hard water is actually a little bit more diffuse than uh, perhaps defining soft. Mm -hmm. So the way I usually tell people uh, how to do this, if, you, if you're ever interested to perceive the difference, is to go to the supermarket and buy a bottle of Dasani, which is a, you know, it's a, a commercially generated water. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the soft water. Mm -hmm. um, and and in, in Australia, I believe pump is an example of a soft water. Pump, love pump. Uh, yeah, pump. That's right. So we like soft water, right? So the hard water that you can buy is Evian. Evian's very hard. Mm. And so the difference in the mouth between the two can be attributed to the, the mineral content and very specifically the very high levels of bicarbonate that exist in Evian. So that, that like silky, almost like viscous feel that you have when you drink Evian, mm. that's actually because the, the buffer in the water is changing the pH in your mouth and it's making you feel kind of soapy. Mm. So when we talk about hard and soft, 
We're specifically referring to water when I say soft, it is low in mineral composition. And when I say hard, it's, it's higher than some arbitrary cutoff, which let's say if you were to sum all of the mass, it would be 170 milligrams per liter. But again, it's important what those milligrams are made of. So it's, that's why it's a little diffuse. Excellent. Well, let's, uh, this is probably a good time to, to transition to some frozy co- frozen coffee things. And I guess I'll just briefly explain what it is that, what Sub-Zero coffee is. And so basically what we do is we, we find really exotic, beautiful, tasty, expensive coffees, and we individually dose and vacuum seal them. And once, with, once that's done, we'll put them in the freezer, which will extend the shelf life, which we'll elaborate on um, in just a moment. And so that's essentially what we do. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. And so what will happen after that is we'll, we, we have up to 50 different coffees available on our menu, it, and it's growing. Um, and a consumer can come and, and, and buy any one of these coffees at any given time. So you can select one of the 50 and we'll make it for you on demand. And I, I have to say, Christopher, a lot of this uh, was inspired by the work that you've done. And, um, and this morning I was watching, before, before the podcast, I was watching a speech you did at the Rico Symposium in 2017 in Seattle. Um, yeah. which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the title was, uh, was Cryogenics in Coffee, if, 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 if I'm correct. And Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and you spoke, uh, you made some really, really good points about freezing coffee. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a simple question for you first, though. What, what was your first encounter with freezing coffee? What made you think, well, let's, let's freeze this? Yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting uh, story. So when I was leaving Bath in 2015, I believe, um, I, I had a sort of longstanding relationship with this guy, Errol Uman, who was a, the lead author on a paper that we wrote called The Effective Temperature and Origin on Grinding Coffee or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Errol was a sales representative and technician and PhD chemist and a variety of other things who, for, a, for an analytical um, equipment company. And he had access to one of these laser diffraction particle size analyzers, the thing that, you know, when you look at the peak grinder, you know, that little like heartbeat looking shape yep. that's on the peak grinder, that's actually the particle size distribution, right? Ah. So, so yeah, so now you've seen it, now you won't be able to unsee it. So the device that made that little, that little heartbeat shape, that is the laser diffraction particle size an- analysis, that's the output. And people like Matt Perger and, and you know, myself, of course, and, and numerous other people, Colin Harmon, they've all done work with this device. But basically what it does is it shines a light on a piece of coffee and looks at how that light bends around it. And the big pieces, you know, it bends less and small pieces, it bends more. So you're able to quantify the size based on some approximations. Okay, so it's not perfect, but it's good enough because it gives you some eyes on some really small pieces. And so right when I was leaving Bath, I had this kooky idea that I would get that device and I bring it to Kalana and Smalls, and I, which is Maxwell's Cafe, and I just run some grinding experiments. Um, and my initial reason for doing that was actually motivated by a, a sort of off-the-cuff comment that I think a lot of coffee professionals believe, which is that um, you know Ethiopia versus Kenya, when in terms in terms of grinding, you have different grind settings, and we usually say, oh, it's because of their density, right? And so I was wondering, well, if, if that's really true, if they are really different in density, can I just grind Ethiopia and 
Kenyan coffee and and compare the grind setting at a given grind, you know, compare their particle sizes for a given grind setting, see if they're different. Mm. Because if the density is different, they probably would grind different. That was my hypothesis going in. And when I started grinding the coffee, I just took whatever was available at Maxwell's shop. And, you know, he always has at least six coffees available. So we had a good cross section of, of coffees and, you know, naturals and washed. But they were all, at the time, they were all specialty roasted, right? They were all on an Agtron scale, what I would call light. But mm -hmm. a, from a, you know, a roaster's development scale, they, you know, had minimal amount of time after first crack. Uh, you know, we could talk about this any number of ways you want. Let's just all agree. These were coffees roasted for the specialty market. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and so I realized I wasn't really going to be able to write a paper that really did a good job of comparing the, the, you know, the question I wanted to answer of Ethiopia versus Kenya without actually looking at a variety of different roasts and, you know, different farms and stuff. So instead what we did is we thought, well, okay, one thing we can control is to go after a different problem, which I heard as anecdotally was that this idea that the another grinder on the market, the Mythos One, would control the temperature of the grinder so that your particle size distribution would be at the time quote unquote better because of that. Um, and again, this actually was motivated by you know a variety of discussions we'd had with other people in the industry, and I was curious about that mm. because I was wondering how the heck can you heat up. You know, grinders get hot when they grind stuff because of friction. Yep. So if your grinder is grinding stuff and heat is always being generated, then, then controlling that heat is going to require some sort of refrigeration, more than just a fan per se. And, and so the Mythos One has a fan that does its best to, you know, keep the temperature of the motor around 50 degrees, something like this. Okay. So I, I thought, well, heating is going to be difficult. And also, it's not the beans, the whole bean that's hot. It's maybe just the burr surface or maybe the motor or something. One thing that definitely would keep that heat down is if I put in something cold to start. So we started with room temperature, and then I put some coffee in the Kelowna and Smalls freezer, and then I put some coffee on a bed of dry ice, and then I also put some coffee, by far the easiest way to cool coffee down, in liquid nitrogen, mm. because liquid nitrogen is indeed a liquid, so you just submerge it. Um, you don't even need a bag. You just, you know, put the coffee in. And it's uh, gas, so it's not going to... And then, and then you lift it out, and it's it's gone. Mm. So, so uh, yeah, so that was the easiest thing. And what's also nice about liquid nitrogen, dry ice, and a freezer is that the temperature is stable. It's not changing, dropping towards room temperature, right? It's, it's if you're at the surface of dry ice, it is dry ice temperature. Um, and so, so while we wanted to explore heating coffee, it was very difficult for me to heat up coffee and then grind it at a known temperature. Mm. So what we ended up doing in those experiments was just cooling coffee down at various different, um, you know, various different temperature points and grinding four or five different coffees. And they all appeared to have very similar particle size distributions. And so we concluded then that independent of origin processing method, whatever, from our small sample size, that the coffees ground the same. But one of the corollaries in that paper, perhaps the, uh, the part that was picked up on very widely and maybe an unexpected outcome, was the fact that when we cooled the coffee to beyond zero or cooler than zero degrees Celsius, so beyond freezer temperature, mm -hmm. that we observed that the fine particulates that are formed when you crack the coffee, you make the dust, that dust seemed to all of a sudden become more or less the same size. Mm -hmm. So instead of being sort of a bigger spread, it tightened up. And that's a really good thing because that means that 
you are now, it's like the equivalent of saying, how difficult would it be to pack grapefruits and oranges on a shelf? Mm. You know, if, if the grapefruits and the oranges were all the same size, then it's a heck of a lot easier to pack them on the shelf. And this is so, probably a good opportunity for me to sort of uh, step in here because what you're saying is that when it, as it gets colder, the grind size yeah. becomes more consistent. And so going back right. to your laser, the, your use of the laser particle distribution, mm-hmm. blah, 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 whatever it's called, yeah. um, if you yeah, were to yeah, if you were to, to to take a statistical set, you would notice that the standard deviation, that is the small differences between particle sizes of room right. temperature coffee and coffee that is frozen is different that's right definitely different so um yeah so so they are they are noticeably different and importantly the average size of the small particle also gets ever so slightly smaller when you get really cold Mm -hmm. uh but one of the one of the other interesting things we noted was if you just go to freezer temperature the average size of the of the fine particulate actually gets bigger but they're all the same size Mm-hmm. So that's a weird that's a weird thing, and so actually we attributed this to some unusual physical phenomena, you know, like a, almost like a glass transition. But we can't really diagnose it because we only took four temperature points, and so to really do this, you'd need to be really high fidelity between those temperatures. Okay, so let's take that 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 point. We wrote that paper, we published that thing when I was then working in in Boston, and uh, at that time. Um, we didn't really know that this was going to kick off big time, this concept of freezing. Um, but what, what I did know was that if you cool something down, you can stop a lot of chemical processes. Mm. Um, some processes, it's worth noting, actually accelerate as you cool. But all the processes we care about in coffee are not those processes. They mm. do not accelerate when you cool them. Okay. So, so as a result, what we found then was that we put forth that if you put coffee in a freezer, then you're going to decrease the rate of volatile loss. So that a lot of people think that that is attributed to, you know, sensory uh, experience of staling. Um, So the more that's lost, the more stale it tastes. We're going to, if there is oxidation processes, we're going to essentially slow those down to basically zero. So they're not going to be oxidizing. If there is process of water loss or water gain, that is going to be slowed to essentially zero, so you're not going to be seeing much change there. And so basically, if you put coffee in the freezer, you're going to be taking a, a, a chemical snapshot in time. Like whatever it was when it went in, that's what it is. It's stuck there. Uh, and so that laid the foundation for, for concepts and projects like the one you work with and numerous other people where they now have these extremely beautiful coffees. They roast them, and the moment that they enjoy the flavor profile they can access in that coffee, you write down the recipe. Make sure you, the recipe corresponded to you know how you actually prepared it, whether it was ground frozen or not or whatever. But you write down that recipe, and you seal them all up, and you sh- throw them in the freezer, and you're ready to go forever. And it's, it's important that we make a distinction here, I think, Chris, because a lot of it might not be so simple – as chucking in chucking coffee in a plastic, you know, in some Tupperware and putting it in the freezer. Um, right. And I think this is a question that I get asked the most. And you know, it's it's great to have you on to sort of reaffirm some of my views. Perhaps you won't. Perhaps you'll disprove me. But um, what we do is we vacuum seal coffee at sub zero coffee, so we we remove the oxygen, and right. it is hermetically sealed after that. So it is right. completely airtight. No oxygen can get in. And, what, and it's interesting what you say about maintaining those volatile compounds, which 
if I were to simplify and translate, would be you know the flavor characteristics and the quality of the coffee. And you you mentioned right. words like stale, so it, it doesn't. What we're doing is we're preserving the coffee and extending the shelf mm-hmm. life. But removing the oxygen is one of the most important parts to that, is it not? Right. So it's so you're that that seal that you make. That the removing the oxygen is helpful, but if you think about uh, air, atmospheric air only contains just make the numbers easy twenty percent O two. Mm-hmm. So you're most of it's nitrogen gas. So there's only actually a finite amount of oxygen in a, a sealed up Ziploc bag. Uh, and, and so, you know, if there is oxidation, it's going to go to some extent until all of the O2 in that bag is used up, then nothing more will happen. So actually the O2, it's important. That is important because if it is oxidation and it's still present and in contact with the coffee, then indeed that, that process could still in principle happen. And this is not totally crazy. I mean, you know, the little headspace between the cork and the end of the wine in the mm-hmm. wine bottle, you know, that little gap. Well, that gap often has O2 in it and you can actually monitor the O2 level drop rapidly after corking the wine and then you can not opening but putting the cork in when it's manufactured and you can actually see oxidation occurs to a point until the O2 in that little headspace is gone so that in principle could happen too when you when you're when you you know seal up your coffee if there were O2 around Mm -hmm. so you vacuum it you pull vacuum on this thing one of the things you're doing when you pull vacuum is, is that other component in the air that you seal, you first put the coffee in the baggie in the presence of air is H2O is water. There's some water in the air and that water exists as water vapor. So when you, when you put the vacuum sealer on, you're going to pull every gas out of that bag, mm-hmm. including H2O. And that's really where I think you, your, your key point of removing stuff is, is that you don't want to trap coffee with a bunch of water around it because then essentially the water is going to go into the coffee. And then once you have water in the coffee, then you can facilitate a variety of chemical reactions that are extremely complicated uh, and very ill-characterized. You know, I myself have no idea of all of those chemical reactions. But the other thing you mentioned is the sealing process. And now once it's sealed, you're now protecting the coffee from its surroundings. And that's really where the benefit is. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to lose volatiles, you're now limited where the space that they can be lost into. But you've also limited how much stuff from the outside world can get into the coffee. And so when you then put it in the freezer, what you've done is you've protected it from all the, you know, the fish sticks and the, uh, you know, whatever, you know, frozen hamburgers and whatever you've got in there. And you've also cooled it down. So now you've slowed all these processes. And you've also protect, you know, on the inside, there's no gases touching the coffee besides any gas that may be coming off very slowly from the coffee. So you've basically just formed like a completely impenetrable seal that prevents that coffee from having any interaction with the outside world. Is it that is, you know, chemistry doesn't magically happen. I mean, there has to be molecules contacting other molecules. And if that doesn't happen, then nothing's going to happen. One last question sort of on this topic is, and, and what's happening, what's the, and I know you're a chemist, but what's, what's the impact of, biologically speaking, of the, of the coffee bean being stored in that, those conditions and, and then frozen? Um, I, yeah. I kind of want to rationalize or explain or simplify the, the extending of the shelf life. So we've removed the bad gases and, um, or not the bad gases, the gases that would sort of, uh, prevent, uh, you know, extending the shelf life. What's happening inside the bean or the cellular structure? Uh, this, I, I don't know. I don't even know what uh, scientific 
term to use here, but yeah. what's happening to preserve science, to right. preserve the coffee? Right. So, so let, let's, let me tackle this in twofold. So let's say, first of all, let's go green coffee. So mm -hmm. you, you, when you store green coffee, that bean has something like 11% water in it. But if you cut the coffee bean in half, you don't see water spill out, you know, like a, like a reservoir of water inside. Mm. The water is distributed throughout that bean. It's, it's you know, it, it's on microscopic level. It's not behaving as liquid water. It's behaving as H2O, a molecule. Um, and so when you, when you think about freezing coffee, um, the word freezing is kind of a tricky thing because we, I use the word freezing because that's the name of the object that I put the coffee into. I put it in my freezer. Mm -hmm. But it's called a freezer because it actually causes water to transition from liquid to solid. Therefore, that's the technical name of that is called freezing. Um, and so, so we, when we think of freezing coffee, green or brown, uh, we're really just talking about cooling it. And that's why I called my talk, Rico's talk, cryogenics, because we're not really doing a phase change. We're just going colder. Mm. So with that in mind, what happens to the green bean when you freeze it or you just cool it down? is that at some temperature, and it's around zero degrees, something happens in that cell or in the cellular material that prevents that coffee from being a viable seed. So coffee is a really strange type of seed. There's very few other seeds that are like this. A coconut is another one. That if you freeze it and then thaw it out, very few of those seeds, like a statistically insignificant number of those seeds, will actually be able to turn into coffee plants. Um, whereas, you know, if you take a green bean that's just been sort of drying out normally as you would you know you buy it from your green distributor you could probably plant one of those and with a pretty good probability it'd turn into a tree so so that's definitely not true when you freeze green coffee but if you freeze green coffee you just stop everything all the biological processes just come to a halt they, nothing further happens so when you pull it out of the freezer you let it slowly warm back up to room temperature those those cells are basically dead and so you have very short amount of time then to roast that coffee, pulling it out of the green, if it's green, before you start putting, you know, you're putting dead cellular material into your roaster. You want to put in as close to fresh cellular material into your roaster. So that's why anecdotally, people have found that, you know, if you pull green out, you got to roast it pretty quickly after you've thawed it out. Otherwise, you start to have a notable difference in, in, in flavor qualities post-roast. So that's the green side. On the brown side, post-roast, once you roast the coffee, all those cells are blown out. You've cooked the crap out of them, right? They are, they are completely turned into a mixture of Maillard products and uh, uh, carburized products, which is, you know, the brown stuff that you see. Also, uh, you know, myriad number of chemicals. Um, and at that point, once you've generated all those chemicals, there's very little water left because, you know, your roaster temperature stops, I don't know, let's say 210 Celsius, you might drop the coffee. But actually, water boils at like 100 degrees Celsius. So, you know, there's very little water left in there. You're 110 degrees above water's boiling point. So, so basically, when you're, we've got brown coffee and you put it in the freezer, what you're really doing is you're just trying to trap all of that chemistry that you generated during the roast process in the bean. So that when you, when you undo the bag and you grind it up, that all the chemistry that was there, you know, six weeks ago is still there today and it will still be there in six weeks. Mm, and this is, uh, this is a good explanation for how we use this in practice because I think most people 
are very skeptical. There's a lot of people are skeptical about freezing coffee because they think, well, how the hell are you going to dial in those 50 coffees? Which is probably, um, I think it's a big misconception in itself, that sort of question, because it's actually far easier to work with frozen coffee because you can, the repeatability, yeah. you can get it the same coffee out of the freezer weeks right. Bet- between right. like between weeks and you know you get the same result provided you haven't realigned y- your grinder or something like that the standardization right. it's actually it's so much easier than room temperature coffee. right right if you if you freeze your coffee and you dial in from grinding that coffee frozen and then you r- arrive at a recipe let's say you know 19.5 grams in the espresso portafilter and 50 grams out uh, and that's it. That's all you have to do. And then the grind setting, let's say 1.6 on the EK or whatever. If you have that written down and you put that coffee in the, fr- all that coffee in the freezer, all you need to do is hit those exact metrics. And that thing is going to taste, you know, within some, some region of error, that's going to taste more or less the same every time. And it's, it's, now, it's, it's purely a matter of, of organization as well. I mean, it's like right, for, for those right. at, at home baristas that are thinking about trying it, just take a take a you know take data of all the coffee that you make and um, if you prepare it the same in theory you should get the same result now sorry I did interrupt you Chris yeah well so I'm I'm, I'm sure we're about to platform into the next step but I I, I don't want to derail us too much but the I'd say it, it works the same every time except for our most recent paper demonstrates when that is not true mm. but uh, but let me finish up on the grinding and 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 cold coffee stuff Mm -hmm. um unless you've got some some more i've got a few more things to say well no you carry on i do have one more question on on different methods of storage um we can go into that now Uh, yeah yeah go ahead let's do that one well where i'm as much as good as vacuum sealing coffee has been um Mm -hmm. it's very tedious and uh, a great australian saying a pain in the ass you might say it is (laughs) uh, so, you know, when I started Sub-Zero Coffee and I bought a lot of the coffee initially, I'd spend 30 hours a week vacuum sealing coffee. It was a lot, I mean, that's the only really method available to me at the moment. But one thing that I'm really interested in uh, is flushing sort of vials that we can reuse because, of course, plastic involved in vacuum sealing coffee, uh, it, there's a bit of waste involved and I'd like I'd love to be able to remove that. But is the future... Is there a possibility that we could instead use, you know, a plastic and/or glass vial and flush that with a gas such as nitrogen or, uh, or argon gas that is used in wine, and that could become a more, I guess, appropriate way of of storing coffee? And when when it, of course, becomes more feasible for a cafe or coffee company to do it? Yeah, for sure. Mm. You, you know, if you drop a bean of coffee into a vial. Now that vial contains less uh, gas because the bean is now occupying some of the space, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you have a small you know test tube or something and you fill it full of beans and they put a lid on it, very little amount of air is actually in that thing. You know, it, it, most of it was displaced by the coffee going in there. So so actually, a lot of people have had success with just using uh, you know test tubes that hold you know for the average coffee, let's say for a, you know a bourbon you know, being that is of a given size, you know, and they have a test tube that holds 20 grams roughly, and there's very little headspace, you know, that would be sufficient. I mean, you don't even need to back flush with argon um, or nitrogen. But if you if you're thinking about doing a back flush with nitrogen or argon, I, I mean, you could, 
uh, you can come up with any number of vials that that would be good for that. You know, it's uh, nitrogen certainly the most cost effective because argon, you know, not a non-zero amount of money. But the but yeah, I mean, you could you could really you could really get creative with the vials that you would hold it in. Uh, I think one of the interesting things I've certainly been to cafes that already do this, like frozen in a sort of a small test tube, if you like. Um, and some in Australia, in Sydney, for example, spring to mind. Uh, and honestly, you know, that works really well. Uh, even without the, flushing? The yeah, they don't even flush it. They just fill those things up and away they go. Um, you know, that you could flush it. if it's, Here's the thing. Look, you got to set up a, a, you know, a, a cost balance sheet where you're saying, okay, I've got this, uh, you know, pulp natural deterra from Brazil. And I'm going to store this thing forever. I'm going to argon flush it and I'm going to put it, you know, and, and, and then you have to zoom out and say, well, but that deterra is not, it's not really worth a lot of money. So it's like, I'm putting a lot of money into its pre in preservation, but unless this is like the best coffee you've ever had in your life, that's a lot of work to, you know, to get a pulp natural Brazil stored in this way. Whereas I understand the argument for, you know, a, a like the best washed Ethiopian coffee you've ever had or the best Panamanian geisha you've ever had. Because for those coffees, it's like they are so seasonal and so different. And they, and, you know, maybe you want to take a snapshot and have this preserved forever. It's this beautiful, like the, you know, the year when uh, Esmeralda was the best coffee, you know, the best coffee in Panama, mm. man, I would like to have tasted that. Because why is it, you know, when, when was the last time it was, I don't, I actually don't know, but I, from in my memory, Esmeralda, you know, I, when I taste that coffee, it's, you know, it's, um, these are amazing coffees. Oh, it's remarkable. Fair. Yeah. These are amazing coffees, but I want to, I want to know the year that it was the best coffee. Mm. That's what I want to be able to taste. Yeah. And, and I, so I, I, I get it from that. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why I do what I do because we're trying to preserve and, you can think of it as flavors, if you like, but I think of it as so much more than that. You know, we you think of something like you know the Esmeralda that you're referencing. Um, right. You know, that's you're preserve you're preserving that memory of that coffee. And I would even go so right. far as to say something like um, I was reading a little bit this morning about the the story of the monk of Mocha, and um, yeah. and that's exactly. that's that's obviously on its own and out their outstanding coffees the it and i encourage anyone to go read that book and read the story and follow it but you're also preserving memories as well and i just think that's part of that's so much of why i'm into this it's not just preserving magnificent cups of coffee it, it's preserving memories and if you go to a wine shop and you speak to a really passionate sommelier they'll they'll just sort of oh yeah describe coffee in so many different ways that you know you might that's think yeah, and some people might think, oh, this this guy's a wanker, or he, he he sees this in a really strange way, but it is, and you know, we're into this sort of thing, and um, totally, I think it's as much about totally. pres preserving the memories as much as is, as it is the flavor. Yeah, exactly, and and then the the other thing on top of that is that you know, if you have the opportunity to then like what you're doing and and others are doing, where you you can now present a a twenty sixteen, a twenty seventeen, a twenty eighteen. The opportunities there are, are immense. You can not only serve people these, you know, verticals and see how the, how the agricultural processes have changed or how weather impacted flavor or all this interesting stuff, but it can also teach you about something about like, do I even have my preferences changed? Have I learned something about, you know, about myself and have I, have I learned a new way to communicate? 
you know, there's so much available if you have this like a long-term data set. And it's just, you know, opportunities seem seemingly endless. It just takes that initial motivation and foresight to say, hey, I'm gonna start a project today that will not even really come to fruition until like two years or three years from now. And I've, I'm saying there's certain copies that I've got that I, I won't sell anymore because I really do want to preserve them for a later time. And I think if you look at the current situation we're in now, coronavirus, it's it was probably, you know, one of the best things I've ever done is, is save all of this coffee because um, there's going to be points in time in the future when maybe this is over and, um, you know, I want to share it amongst friends or serve it to people. It's just, you know, we've for me, there's some of this coffee that I've locked in and it's like, it's it's a vintage that happened just before Corona. So this is a pre-Corona coffee, and there's so many different ways we're going to be able to categorize coffee and and sell it. And it's it's a matter of perception, I guess. That um, right. Right. it's it's part of the magic of freezing coffee. That freezing coffee will enable us to do. But I'd like to segue into something else, Chris. And um, I probably I probably haven't allowed as much time for this as I, as I perhaps should have. But at some stage throughout this year, I think it was about in February, March, you co, um, co-authored a paper with Michael Cameron um, right. titled Systematically Improving Espresso Insights from Mathematical Modeling and Experimentation. Could you explain sort of first the hypotheses of the paper and what it sought to sort of do? Yeah, so shortly after I left uh left England and moved to Boston, which by the way, remember was in 2015. Boston. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Into Boston. Yeah. So I, uh, so when I was over in Boston, uh, the, we had my relationship with Errol Uman, uh, was still persistent. The guy with the laser diffraction particle size analyzer. Okay. And, uh, one of the questions I had was, well, you know, was related actually specifically to the device you referred to at the beginning of this of this talk, the refractive index measurement, right? And uh, I was interested in understanding how that device could tell you anything about a quality of coffee, because you know its its measurement is some is a measurement related to dissolved mass. And so we began on a study of trying to understand how qualities of coffee would would be related to dissolved mass measurements. Uh, and I was specifically interested in espresso because the sharp eye will notice that the this you know the a- SCA or the whatever it's called in Australia is it the ASCA? Uh, ASCA, uh, yeah, ASCA. Yeah, ASCA. So all of these all of these um, societies, these, these communities, they the associations, they don't have a, a so-called brew control chart, if you like, for espresso. So that was telling me something. That's saying, well, espresso, there's something else going on in espresso. It's not as simple as just, you know, you know, arrive at some extractions and it's going to taste great. There's got to be more. And so we were trying to go after the more problem. Um, and we basically what happened was in 2016, I think I contacted Michael and I, we'd become friends about this freezing of coffee thing actually. And, uh, and uh, I said, well, hey, can you, uh, do you want to try some experiments? And he was working in Brisbane at the time and said, sure, I'll do this. And, it, and one thing led to another when we realized that, uh, you know, he ground at one grind setting at, you know, 1.3 on the EK and ground at 1.5. And we noticed that at 1.5, our extraction yields went up. Mm. Uh, and, and that, to me, was like, that's like a death blow. Oh, well, I guess in a way that's it, it's contrary to what you're taught as a barista because usually when you say 1.5, I should note, is coarser on the dial, um, right. it will make bigger particle sizes than 1.3 would. 
you're taught right. as a barista that finer means stronger. Right. Mm. Right. So this is this is totally devastating, right? Because mm. I know that people have experienced this. I'm not the first to do this either. We've all had coffee that tastes over extracted and under extracted at the same time, <laughs> right? And you're like, how the heck did that happen? Yeah. So I, we, we've achieved that. And actually, sometimes we like that flavor. We call it complexity, uh, you know, because that's, you know, it's a variety of flavors. Harmonious balance. Exactly. A harmonious <laughs> balance, be, which, which actually from a particle size distribution perspective and, and accessibility of the surface area is completely inhomogeneous. But <laughs> let's neither here nor there. Okay. So the point was that Michael and I made this observation and ruffled some feathers with this observation because those two data points alone are very damning. If you think about the implication, that's essentially rocks the foundation of what we think of as a teaching espresso from a, from a fundamental perspective. So we did a lot more work and it took, a, as you can see, it's now 2020, the paper came out and we started in 2016. So it took, it took years mm. of work to get this under control. And the reason it took years was because we had to not only we not only did all the work in the cafe, we had to understand it from a mathematical perspective. Otherwise, it was just another anecdote. Otherwise, there was no fundamental concept or theory underpinning our observation that there is a mechanism in which you could produce more small particles and smaller large particles and get a reduced extraction yield. Okay, so, so that is, that's that sort of tipping point in our paper where we say you start grinding, you start coarse, you grind finer and finer and finer, and everything's behaving. You're getting higher extraction yield. Shots are running slower, all the usual stuff. And then at some point, you get tip off the edge, and now no longer is your extraction yield going up, but shots are running slower, right? Mm -hmm. And so that that we call that choking, or we call it channeling, or whatever you want to call it. But just saying that in the scientific community is insufficient. Yeah, that is not that is not evidence. That is a lack of evidence. And so that's why it took us a while. Um, but basically, the, the, the relationship between Michael and I was, I said to him, I, I need someone who wants to do this project with me, and it's going to take a while. And he said, I, I want to do that. And he was fin finishing up his degree in psychology at the time. And I said, you will be the first author on a very important paper if, when this comes out. Mm. And he sort of lost the love for that in 2018. We went a little quiet because that's how projects go. They go quiet. And I said, don't lose the love. It will happen. I promise you. And uh, eventually I got this thing submitted at the end of 2019, uh, pre-COVID, a pre-COVID paper. Pre-COVID. We love it. Yeah, it was a pre-COVID paper. So we got it submitted at the end of 2019, came out pre-COVID. Uh, it actually broke in the news pre-COVID pre-COVID and it was about the last piece of good news I can remember well it's uh, it's you came to Australia I can't remember what one what month it was but I came and saw your talk in Melbourne uh, that was yeah. at uh, Lama Zocco's headquarters in in Richmond and then of course right. there was um there that you were hosted by Toby's estate and right, um, right. I found the talk very fascinating. I must admit, Chris, I was skeptical at the start because I failed to I failed at the time to see how you would universally apply this to all coffee. But I think there's a very important point here that we should mention to baristas that are listening is that we mentioned the term extraction yield. So what that's a formula that's um, that's uh, well, the extraction extraction yield is the result of a, of a formula that's applied to coffee. So you'll get your your dose and your yields and the the total dissolved solid rating. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's the the yield uh, divided by the dose 
and you'll multiply that by the TDS rating and that will give you your extraction yield or your extraction percentage. And not a lot of people know this, but, um, well, I I think people do know this, but it failed to sort of recognize at times in when I'm I'm talking about in practice behind a bar, when you drop your dose, you're actually increasing your extraction. When you drop your dose, you're increasing the strength of your coffee. And I think a lot of people sort of, you know, particularly with milk-based coffee, they fail to realize this um, because with milk-based coffee, you need a higher concentration of coffee solids to be able to counteract the the, the strength of the milk. Um, right. I think that's just one of the things that people tend to forget. And also where, where we might segue onto here is the flow rate of water going through a coffee bed. So if you right. get, if you're grinding too fine, you're choking, you're creating those inconsistencies. If you're grinding coarser, you're creating an environment, I guess you could say, where you're allowing the flow rate of water going through that bed of coffee to be more consistent, thereby increasing your extraction. Is that on the right path? Yeah, so that's that's what happens. So you're on the you're on the tipped off side of the volcano, if you like. You're on the side where things are misbehaving, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, basically that's right. So so uh, just to sort of reiterate that, or or bounce it back at you a different way, is that the usual way you're taught, which is you grind finer, your flow rate goes down because your particles are occupied, you know, they're smaller, so they pack together more so the water can not percolate through that bed as easily. That, uh, that totally applies, 100% to a point. And then once you've made too many small particles, then you get all this inhomogeneous sort of uneven flow throughout. And so that's, that's the side that we're talking about now, which is, well, most people prepare coffee on grind settings that result in that because we want to hit a certain time, shot time. And the reason we want to hit that time is because certain flavors don't get extracted quickly. They need time. And so, you know, if your shot runs really fast, you are going to deliberately exclude certain flavors. Now, one of the byproducts of my paper certainly is that our shots are being are running fast, fast, like real fast. And so they have a totally different flavor profile than a shot that runs slow. And there, you know, there's dissimilarities, dissimilarities there already. But the one thing we pointed to, and you mentioned it, is that it is possible to have the same TDS, same amount of coffee stuff floating around in the water, and it be made with less coffee, so a lower dose, and it tastes, quote unquote, better. Now, that is sort of the, the reasoning for that is that if you can get away from this uneven flow, if you can access all of the coffee evenly then you have all the coffee getting wet at the same rate. You have all of the coffee imparting flavors at the same rate. And so you get less of a spread. And I like to think about it as like, you know, you've always got that one friend you go hiking with who can get up the hill really damn fast. And they always are waiting for you at various different stages along the way. It pisses you off, right? Mm. So I've always got that friend. And then you've also got the other friend who is me, who's always the slowest guy up the hill for, I like to say, cause I'm taking in the surroundings, but it's just because I'm not very good at hiking. So that is an inefficient way to climb that hill, right? Mm. And so that's the equivalent of the cu- flavors getting extracted into this cup. So the guy who gets to the top of the hill, do you stop the extraction then? No, because not everything has made it into the cup yet. So if you stop the extraction as soon as, you know, the first stuff makes it into the cup, your shot's going to be low in, low in concentration. It's going to be really only under extracted, the front end of stuff. So then what you end up doing is you end up waiting around for a really, really long time for all the stragglers to come back up that hill. And in that amount of time, those big pieces that already let out all the good flavors are now also letting out all the bad flavors. 
And so in order to get that shot TDS up, you end up getting a mixture of things you don't actually re really even like mm. in there. And that's basically it. That's It's just that if you have even flow, then you you are essentially hiking with a whole bunch of people that all have the same physical capability. And we uh, we forgot, I, I think we both forgot to mention that uh, key to this is lowering the pump pressure as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Because if you push too hard, right? So if you're, if you're trying to force water through a really dense little bed, there's not that much space in that bed. And so what you're really trying to do is you don't want to agitate this bed too much. Otherwise, you're just going to try and drill a hole straight through it. And so under high pump pressures, we just found, you know, that initial wetting stage resulted in what we would call, quote unquote, channeling or inhomogeneous flow or uneven extraction or whatever you want to call it, uh, to a point where even at some grind settings, water wouldn't even make it through the bed at all. And a pro so, probably another important point to raise here, Chris, is that you mentioned Michael Cameron before, who um, did a large amount of work on this. And, you know, I've I've asked Michael to come on the podcast before, but he's recently just had a baby and, you know, he's a busy guy juggling being a father and stuff like that. And I'm sure he'll come on yeah. at some stage, but uh, a lot of credit needs to go to him, I imagine, for, for this paper, because oh, yeah. uh, I think I was there at some stages when he was, you know, working like a mad dog on this. And so full credit to Michael Cameron for making or oh, contributing yeah. Yeah. to a big part of this. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Michael, without him, his wife Detchen, who congratulations to both of them on their on their newborn, uh, and we, actually without you know, often we overlook the middle authors, but there are a tremendous number of people on this paper, all of which had both intellectual uh, contributions and writing contributions to this. So you know, everybody who everybody who wants to be part of science can be part of it. You know, certainly in my group anyway, mm. uh, and and everybody is valuable to me. So we're. Um, yeah, you know, we said we have some ambitions and goals, but this is one of our key things is to make sure we're doing relevant and important. We're asking important questions and doing relevant science that has impact. Uh, and, you know, part, you know, for me, I, I th I'm doing this this podcast with you. And, you know, for me, this is actually like a celebration for me because I'm talking to one of the, you know, one person who's taken basically all these concepts that I've spent ages thinking about and is actually making stuff with it. and it's tasting good and people are enjoying it's it. It's tasting fantastic, Chris. Well, good job. I'm great. This is, I don't even know what to say. This is so, you know, you, you may enter, you may interview other scientists, right? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know who's going to, who's on your set list. Okay. But I'll tell you what, as the scientist who gets to see their stuff being immediately impactful, that's so rare. You know, it's super rare that, you know, if you saw what I actually do in a day to day, that that has any impact today. Maybe it impacts something in 10 years. Maybe it impacts something in 100 years. But today, no way. Well, well I just, well, on that note, yeah. you know, thank you for all your contributions to COVID because it's it's been industry, it's been an absolute game changer. Um, and um, it's, I don't know what I'd be doing without freezing coffee. And, you know, you see so many people competing, um, uh, competing using uh dry ice or like Mickey Suzuki did back in 2017 when she used nitrogen, she cited you in her, in her routine. And um, yeah, I guess to that end, it must be a good feeling seeing, you know, a lot of hard work of people like yourself paying off in the field. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, it's, uh, it's good. And, and, you know, I, I, I realized I didn't answer a question, but this leads nicely back to one thing I forgot to mention was that, you know, one of the ways that we contribute back to the industry from a scientific perspective is we, we you know, we've, uh, water for coffee which is now the fabled book that no one can buy because we stopped printing it uh but there will be a new version eventually and we've got and we've got peak water which uh i didn't answer where you could get that well people have apparently received theirs in the mail i certainly did 
So I think they're going to be soon to be purchased. Uh, and I'm not sure who the distributor is in Australia, for for example, but they, you know, they'll be around. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, this is our way of putting it, you know, we're, I'm not trying to make money off this coffee industry. In fact, it's really important. I, I never once have tried to make money in this process. Not many people make a lot of money in coffee. It should be noted. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, you don't make, yeah, yeah. You don't but, get into uh, it to make know, money. All, yeah. You definitely don't do it to make money, but I certainly, I am certainly not making money. Mm. Right. That is, I'm doing this because I really like the, I really like the impact that coffee has. I really like the way that we can talk about science and we can talk about coffee and people and environments and, you know, perceptions and things. And it's all based around this one little tiny beverage that we all, you know, think deeply about. Uh, and, and that's really what science actually is. Mm. It's just that this science is one that you can drink. Yeah. Well, Chris, you've, um, you've raised some absolutely amazing points today and it's been a really eye opening discussion for me. And, um, and I won't take too much more of your time because we've been going for a grand total of an hour and eight and a half minutes now. Um, but a question I usually like to try and ask every uh, guest that comes on is what is, and it's, it's a very hard question, but what is the best coffee you've had? That is big. Mm. That is a big it's question. A tough one. Okay. All right. Can I give you a couple? Rattle them off. All right. All right. Here's a couple. Uh, from attending SCA conferences uh, and, and other, and Toby's estate, for example, when I did the, the knowledge talk tour in Australia and going to Seoul for the World Coffee Leaders Forum, you get the idea. All these events that I now am, am somehow welcome into that circle. Um, I often interact with people who give me uh, very, very generous coffee um, that I can bring home and share with my partner and I get to share it with my colleagues and so forth. And every single one of those coffees is special for the reasons that we talked about with the freezing, that experience, that memory, the, the whatever. So every single one of those coffees uh, is, is really, I don't want to say best because it's hard to assign the absolute to a particular one, but all of those coffees have a memory that make me, I don't know how I want to put this. I have fond memories from each one of those and I have photographs from every single one. And I can look back on that and flavor notes written on the photograph. And I can look back on that and remember who gave it to me, when they gave it to me and what it tastes like when I brewed it. Uh, and, and that's not freezing. It's not quite what you're doing, but it's the next best thing. Right? Mm. So those ones are important. There are a couple of notable flavors that I've had that are, that are, uh, or, you know, coffees that I've had that had flavors that I was pretty amazed by. And these were gifts. These were these were very generous um, contributions to my personal stash. Uh, one was from a, a good friend of mine, Jameson Savage, who's obviously a very famous uh, producer in Panama. Mm. He um, he heard that I was running a little low on coffee in the coronavirus pandemic, and he kindly sent me a, a bag or two of coffee. And I have his Geisha Illumination here. Well, if he's, if, he, if he's feeling generous and, you know, I'm running low too, Jamison, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent me this, he sent me illumination and he sent me a coffee called Nirvana. This, this illumination is just mind blowing. This yeah, thing, I, I mean, I do not want to drink this every day because it's like, it's a lot, there's a lot happening, but my goodness, this is, you know, you could win competitions with this thing. Um, then the, the other coffees that I've had that are really, honestly, really memorable. I recently went to Hawaii. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an area that you don't usually think of as producing high quality specialty coffees, 
Um, and I had a mocha, the variety mocha, the tiny little beans. M-O-K-K-A? So, yeah, M-O-K-K-A or yeah, yeah, that thing. Yeah. I had that grown in Hawaii and it, they produce as a natural mocha grown in Hawaii. Mm. And it was roasted. I'd say this thing was roasted uh, to, uh, you know, appease a, a palate of perhaps your mother. Ooh. Okay. Little, little toasty on the end there. But this coffee tasted like, at, like tasted, you don't have this in Australia. It tastes like graham crackers, which is, you know, like a sort of like almost like a, a cinnamony wafer sort of thing. Sounds yum. Um, and, Hershey's chocolate and marshmallows. We call this a s'more. This thing was just s'mores. Mm. And, you know, I, I, there's very rarely can I drink two cups of coffee back to back because they're so delicious. This thing, I could have drunk liters of this stuff. This was crazy. Uh, and, you know, that was just a wonderful coffee. And then, and then there's just been every single competitor who I've ever tasted their coffee. You know, I want to make a comment real quick. We didn't talk about my mom and dad, and I do have time for you if you still want to. Do oh, that. please! I was, I was just wondering. Damn, I'm gonna end this okay, without talking me, about let me Sharon. Tell you something about yeah, my well, my mom and dad, Sharon and Harry. Okay, so let me tell you something about them. They they flew to Dublin to go to the World Barista Championship and and World Brewers Cup Championship in Dublin. Meet me there mm. just for fun. We went there and we had a great time. It was so fun. We you know we did all this cool stuff. But one of the things my dad pointed out. As he said, you know what? The Brewers Cup's so much better than the Brista Championship. And I was like, why? You know, why is that? I mean, I guess I can see for a home person, you know, it's like more translatable to mm. what they do at home. But he's like, because those competitors take those crazy coffees and they stand at the brew bar and serve them to you. <laughs> you know, so you get to actually taste what they're competing with. I never even really thought about how awesome that is, but that mm. is awesome. It's amazing. And, uh, and, you know, that's what the Brista Championship should do as well they should make him be working the bar uh but anyway nonetheless neither here nor there the, the, as a platform that sends you towards my parents who have really opened my eyes to various different facets of this industry because they are coming from the generation that we think of as not necessarily the specialty coffee consumer you know 60 plus year old people and i assure you my my mom and dad <laughs> Have you ever met them? They are definitely the specialty coffee consumer. Well, it was funny. The The first time I met your mother, she came into a cafe that I was working at casually and I had been everywhere I work. I sort of take a, I have a little stash of frozen coffee where I go and I, and your mom and your dad walked in and um, I, I said, oh shit, that's Christopher Hendon's mom. I'm going to go say hello. And so I yeah. did. And then, you know, I made them um, a coffee from Yemen actually. And they were just, and your mom and I became pretty good friends. She invited me over for Christmas lunch and everything. I was busy that day, but your oh, mom's you awesome. Yeah, you mm. missed out. You should you should take her up on that. Oh, next Christmas the, uh, if if we can. I'm I'm there. Yeah, yeah, for mm. sure. Mm. Yeah. So, so so a little background about my mom. So she had she had an unusual sort of cancer in her nose, mm. uh, and and to to you know to remove the cancer, they operate on your you know on the cancer and remove a part of her nose on the inside. And, uh, and she also had radiation treatment. And so, you know, this is really tough on the body and it's also tough on the mind because, you know, it's your face. Mm. Um, but one of the, you know, we've overcome that challenge because she's ex extremely tough and taught me a lot about the world. But uh, one, of the, one of the byproducts of that was that she lost her sense of taste and smell. And as a, you know, she was a trained chef. So this was really kind of devastating for someone whose whole life was dedicated to the pursuit of balanced flavor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, we thought 
you know, when we were going through this process as a family, we thought that this might be, you know, mentally more taxing than perhaps physically. Uh, but actually, we found that she gained this strange ability to be an extremely good coffee taster uh, in the sense that she can still detect changes in acidity. She can detect uh, mouthfeel and all the things that, you know, are hidden to us deep below all the flavor that we perceive. If you get rid of all the flavor and you just go back to that mouthfeel, the acidity, the salinity, the saltiness and, the, and all that, she can taste all of that still. Mm. And so, uh, so she became extremely good at, at making very, very sharp statements about extractions and so forth that are way more difficult for, you know, perhaps a fully able taster like you or I. Uh, and as a result, I decided that I would enter her into the cup taster championship. Um, <laughs> because I thought, you know what, that this coffee industry needs people like her, it needs people that like this industry and, and enjoy the industry and take from the industry in the sense that they go to the cafe and enjoy the product, but never really get to be part of the industry per se. And why not? Why not enter in the cup tasters, you know, minimal, minimal cost, minimal contribution. You don't need to train that much. You just step up to the mm. plate and go for it. And, you know, she, she actually surrounded herself with what I'd say quite influential coffee people to so-called train her. But really I think what they were doing is just having coffee with her occasionally. Mm. And, uh, and she uh, she did five out of eight in a minute and thirteen seconds, and I'd say that that is that's pretty good. That's better than I could do. Who, that's pretty good for someone who can't taste. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty that, good. That's incredible. And yeah, your mother's a lovely lady, and she's she did come to one of the Sub Zero Coffee pop ups that we did here in in Melbourne, and um, yeah, and your dad uh, enjoys the coffee as well, which is um, you know it's great to see, and um, I think you know. They're almost, for me, for people that don't make coffee, you know, for a living, they're kind of like the perfect customer. They're the, they're the ones that personally I get the most enjoyment out of, enjoyment out of serving. So, yeah, you've got great yeah. parents, mate. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm lucky to have my I, – it's going to be a while until I get to see them again. Mm. But, um, but, you know, they're, they're going to still be kicking. They're, they're, they're still doing what they're doing down in Melbourne. So, I, uh, you know, I hope, I hope they're um, – I hope they tune in and listen to this number one. And I, I look forward to actually getting back down there and, and going and tasting some more coffee with them. Well, mate, I look forward to you coming here and hopefully by the time that's done, we'll, we'll have a shop of our own eventually. And, um, would love to share some ideas with you and, you know, get some, uh, get some advice on how to make coffee better in the future. And, um, I won't take too yeah, much cool. more of your time, mate, but thanks so much for coming on. And, um, yeah, it's been a really insightful, enjoyable chat. Uh, thanks, Kirk. I really appreciate it. Anytime. No, oh, well, uh, yeah, that's everyone, ladies and gentlemen. That is Dr. Christopher Hendon.